Many of us have those stubborn pounds that seem impossible to lose, no matter how good we eat or how hard we work out. My solution is Plush Care. Plush Care is a leading telehealth provider with doctors who are there for you day and night to partner with you in your weight loss journey. They can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wagovi and Zepbound for those who qualify. Plus, they accept most insurance plans. To get started, visit plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. One year ago, Oregon announced its first known case of the coronavirus. It's changed all of our lives, and few things are untouched by the toll the disease has taken on our society, on our businesses, on our politics. I'm Andrew Thien, and this is Beat Check with the Oregonian. In those 12 months, life and its many challenges have continued on. Up next, we'll hear from Katrina Thompson, a Springfield nurse who worked with COVID patients throughout the year, then lost her home in the holiday farm fire. Then she came down with COVID-19 herself. On the second half of the show, the Oregonian and Oregon Live's Tom Hallman reflects on some of those we've lost. He's written nearly a dozen life stories about people who have died of COVID-19. But first, here's my conversation with Katrina Thompson. Well, Katrina, thanks so much for taking time to talk today. Thank you for letting me have the opportunity. So we've all been living in this wild, wild world for the last year and a half. But your story and your experience with COVID, I think, is particularly fraught and tied into other seismic events of 2020. So can you walk us back when exactly you first tested positive for COVID-19? October 4th, I started with my first symptoms. And that was just a little GI upset and a slight cough that evening. But my uh, little nurse antenna were up. So I went ahead, scheduled a doctor appointment the next day and ended up going and sitting in a two hour line to get tested. And, and, uh, by the time I finished the line, I was febrile and every body part hurt. And the next day, about noon, I got called by my family practitioner's office and they said, you're positive. Now, take us back to October 4th. What else was going on in your life at that time? Um, we had been in our rental house for about a week. We lost our uh, home up the McKenzie Valley in the forest fire, the Holiday Farm forest fire. And so we'd been evacuated for about two weeks to a hotel in Springfield and uh, spent a lot of time having to do things that you don't normally do out in public when you're quarantined. We had to go get food because we didn't have a kitchen. We had to Mm. shop for pretty much everything other than the two pieces of luggage we brought out with us. So we spent way more time than we usually did out in public. And uh, unfortunately, that probably was where I contracted this. It's our assumption at this point. I'm so sorry about your home. Um, you know, I, I, I can't imagine the fear of that. Um, and this happened at the tail end of a year that I would imagine had been a significant strain for you personally. Yes. Just the constant evolution of, uh, learning the different styles and, um, policies on how we are going to deal with the whole COVID at the hospital was, it was new and ever changing as new information came out. And so trying to keep up with everything was, was stressful, but you know, losing your home, you know, getting home from work and 20 minutes later, you're, you're leaving, um, was, was a pretty much a shock. Do you mind taking me back to that day? You had just gotten home from, from a shift. 
Yes, I work at 11 a.m. to 11.30 p.m. And I'd heard about the fire around 9 o'clock. And it, but it was at mile post 47 and we're at 26. And, uh, so I was like, hmm, okay, I'll just keep listening for it. And, uh, when I was driving home, um, the 60 mile an hour winds were blowing branches right by me in the car and, and they put a roadblock up right in the town of Vida and said, no one's going past it. And I was like, I thought it was all the way up by McKenzie Bridge, <laughs> <laughs> which is another 20 miles up the river. And, uh, and so I let all my neighbors know when I came up the drive, there's six of us on our drive and that they had roadblocked us and we, everyone in the Valley had lost power at that point. So most of them didn't know what was happening, that there was a fire or that it was coming towards us. And so then when I got the alert across my phone, I sent out another text to let all the neighbors know. And uh, I'm thankful I did because one neighbor never got the emergency response text that that goes out the emergency warning so they were very happy that we i had called and let them know um <laughs> mm, i imagine and everyone was able to get out on your, and on your everyone road. on our our drive all got out safely um we lost two homes a large barn and uh one house had significant fire damage to it out of all of those so unbelievable and then our house so <laughs> So this happened um, so quickly um, Mm -hmm. and um, how long were you out of work and what was going through your mind? I mean, we'd already, we're living in a pandemic and you had just lost your home and now you had tested positive for COVID during the same time, right? Well, it was September 8th and we lost the house and we didn't find out for sure that we had lost it until the 11th. And we actually couldn't even get up the river to see what had happened until the 22nd of September mm. to see our property. And we had moved in on the around the 20th into our rental. And are you working during this whole time? I didn't start back to work until the 23rd of September. Okay. And I just, you just kind of feel like you're a zombie at that point. You're just, and, and of course, at that point in time, I'm not sure if in your area, the sky, you couldn't see like 40 feet in front of you because the sheer volume of smoke that was just trapped in our valley. And, uh, and so it was just, it was overwhelming. You're just kind of going, where do I go next? What do I do next? Um, and my husband and I just came up with this motto of we're just going to find the good in this because otherwise you're just going to lose it. And so silver lining is my husband doesn't have a honey do list anymore. <laughs> <laughs> Yeah, well, that's uh, that's one way all to look at it. Paperwork that you're going to organize and get taken care of. Yeah, it's all taken care of now. <laughs> so you're going around like a zombie, as you described, and then it was just a few weeks later that you tested positive. Yes, I, I made it back to work. I worked three days, three shifts, and then uh, four days following my last shift, I started showing symptoms. The next day, I went in and I tested positive. Did you work with COVID patients at, at the hospital in Springfield? I did. I do. Um, during that week, I had not gone on our COVID floor. Okay. Uh, so that's where you have to think it must have been from the community exposure, uh, having lost your home. Yes. What's it like to go to work um, in a hospital, like you said, where you are working with um, with 
patients who have this disease and then um, and then you you contract it yourself? Well, I definitely have a higher realm of empathy for them and I can relate to what they're going through and give them advice on on what to do to um, improve their comfort levels. Was that kind of a, a a head trip for you or were you expecting, you know, that this might happen given that you are seeing this, you know, uh, throughout 2020 that, that you might contract COVID? I honestly thought I'd be an asymptomatic type person or have the extremely mild case because I came into this with no pre-existing medical conditions. Mm. Um, I was more worried about my husband who has a couple of the higher risk conditions. And so I was worried that he would get ill and all my focus was on, Oh, I got to make sure he stays safe and I'll be fine. You know, (laughs) wasn't quite that way though. Yeah. Can you kind of walk us through how it all shook out? We, I, I was diagnosed um, in the first couple of days. It was just mild body aches and headaches, some sore throat, this little barky cough, and uh, temperatures. They never went more than 101.5, but I, I stayed on top of taking Tylenol for it. Um, mm-hmm. About day three in, um, the body aches became extreme. As a kid growing up, do you remember siblings that would sit there and twist your arm back and forth? <laughs> My whole body felt that way. And it was just excruciating. And I didn't sleep for like a week straight because I just was so uncomfortable. And my friends from work brought me an oxygen sap monitor and were dropping off soups and stuff. Because obviously, once I got sick, my husband was quarantined. <laughs> so mm-hmm. he couldn't go out to get anything. So we had... Uh, all number of our friends coming to the house, dropping off food and things for us. So I monitored my oxygen saturations and heart rate. I was still maintaining at least 96%. So I was happy with where I was at. Um, and your adult daughter got it right around the same time, right? About two days after me, she developed a fever and, um, and GI upset. And then she just had a headache and, and she was like, mom, this is the world's worst headache. And I was like, I know. <laughs> I know. She's like, what can they do? And I said, nothing. <laughs> so she'd be calling me at two in the morning because she couldn't sleep and her head hurt. But she was in and out in about four days and just fine after that. How close were you to going to the hospital, Katrina? Um, there was probably a couple of times I should have gone. Um, but... I've never been hospitalized without my husband at my side. And I'm a strong proponent of having your family at your bedside to advocate for you. And um, my husband's father-in-law lost his um, residence at the when we were in the fire too. And so he's residing with us and he came down sick. And I was directing his, what my husband should do to care for him while I was sick in bed also. <laughs> so I didn't feel comfortable leaving him. Hmm. Or leaving my husband without me helping him in my own way at that point to take care of his father. So uh, I just, I toughed it out. <laughs> you know, given that you had such a a serious case, I, would, would you classify this as serious or moderate? I guess, what would you say? I would say moderate just because I did not go to the hospital. I didn't feel I was critical enough to go to an ICU room. So mm-hmm. I figured I could make it 
on my own at, at home in terms of saying it's moderate is the fact that it was so prolonged for me. It just wouldn't end. <laughs> and how are you feeling now? I am, I'd say about 85% back to normal. I have fatigue still. Um, I still have an exertional shortness of breath. I still can't smell anything. <laughs> and uh, get occasional headaches, more so than I ever had prior to this. So, uh, Is it scary to still have these symptoms? Um, you know, I, I guess it's only been, what, five months, but uh, four or five months, but uh, and that's still a long time. Is it scary? It's it is kind of depressing at times because you're like, when am I going to be done with this? Um, frustrating, depressing. You're just like, I'm I'm so over this. <laughs> Can we just finish this? Um, I don't feel scared because I know I'm not sick enough to just it's not going to knock me out completely. But I just there's always in the back of your mind that, well, what if I just completely overdo it and I somehow end up with a relapse? And it's like. I don't want to relapse. Nobody wants to relapse. Mm -hmm. Nobody wants to go through a round two of this. So there's always that fear um, that I feel like I, the further away I get, the less chance I will have. And now with the, ex the vaccine on board, plus any antibodies I might have created, I'm, I'm hoping that that won't happen. But I am working and I'm happy that I get to be in my position again because I missed it. What did you miss about it? Well, after all the events of the fall of 2020, my biggest desire to be back at work was is control issues <laughs> and making things happen. I, I usually run a situation and I make things happen and I get things done and it all is taken care of. And so when you lose that in your real life, at least I had it in my work life. <laughs> Yeah, talk about uh, not being able to control something, uh, a, a wildfire and a pandemic are uh, pretty high on that list. Yes, definitely. Do you allow yourself to, to, to you know, I think people would, would understand if you would feel sorry for yourself for this double whammy. Um, it's unbelievably traumatic. Do you think about it that way or um how do you look at it uh, what happened to you last fall um we had our moments and because we lost we had a lot of family heirlooms and the, that was more devastating to than losing our 40 acres of trees and our house was the family heirlooms um but we got our our dogs our cat and all of us made it out safely so that's the most important part. Um, and I know everyone has sympathy and, and, and no one can imagine when you walk up to a house in town that's burnt, mm. there's a structure there still. You walk up to a house that's burnt in a forest fire, you have a few crumbling pieces of foundation and the metal objects that were in the house are this twisted heap. And that's all there is. So we kind of walk through the devastation and just absorbed it and I wanted to save a few things that I could actually remember what they were because you know some random pieces of pottery and things had made it and and my husband was like make it all disappear because that makes him feel better when it's gone and he doesn't have to see it and so everyone has their own way of dealing with that and then 
um, the sympathy from everyone at work um, and support has been just overwhelmingly amazing. They are so just, they just wanted to be there for us. And I mean, from every level of the hospital, I had support from physicians and nurses and CNAs at lab. Everybody was, you know, letting me know that I was thought of this time. And I don't know if that answers the question. I I mean, I, I don't want people to feel sorry for us because we made it. Um, and, and I'm making it through the, the healing process and it really stuck. It stinks. It's, and I would not wish this on my worst enemy ever. <laughs> and so we are much more overwhelmingly encouraging people to be so, so safe and get, get their vaccines because it's just not worth it to risk going through it for someone who was supposed to probably not have any problems to going through as long of process as I had because I was out until December 12th. Wow. You know, we've had, um, we still have people who, uh, don't think that COVID is a serious threat, um, or that are skeptical of the vaccine for various reasons. Uh, what, what would you say to those people? Well, I know some of those people, um, (laughs) and I, I, for quite a while, I just was so upset because they would spout their what their theories were. And I took personal offense because it's like, did you not just see what I went through? <laughs> and uh, I've encouraged everyone that I speak with to get the vaccine. I was like the guinea pig at work. I was, I, as soon as 90 days was up, I went and got the vaccine. Mm. I got first round. I let everybody know how if I had a reaction, which I had no reaction to number one on Pfizer. And then when I got number two on Pfizer, and that was the one that people seemed to have like a couple days of flu-like symptoms. Right. I had about 24 hours. And I was like, you know, it was like day one of COVID, which really wasn't that bad. (laughs) So in comparison, I'll take one day of day one COVID over the whole onslaught of COVID that I had. We talked about your your health and your recovery. What about your home? I mean, what's the process been like um, with emergency relief? Have you been able to get recovery assistance? And do you want to build back again, or or is it too painful? Well, we got assistance immediately from the hospital. Um, they were covering all the employees that were evacuated hotel costs, so. That was great because it took like a week for our insurance to kick in and do anything. And then they, they gave us money to cover hotel costs, but it was mm-hmm. nice that the hospital gave that to us and uh, no questions asked. And they hooked us up with um, assistance and everything. And we went to Red Cross and just felt like, you know what, these people need this more than we do. And uh, we can manage our own. We don't need to take anything from them because they're there's people that need this way more than we do. We have insurance and, and we'll get the money. It might take a lot of arguing and, you know, headaches, but we'll, we'll get it taken care of. Um, we finally got our settlement and our 
hoping to have our plans approved for the county at some point. Um, but uh, our county is notorious for a <laughs> prolonged wait time. <laughs> and do you envision building again out in that um, beautiful area or, or? Oh, yes. Yeah. Yes. This was our retirement cabin that we had purchased five years ago. And so, um, yeah, we're rebuilding and uh, pretty much everything on the honeydew list has been fixed on the rebuild. <laughs> <laughs> um, and, you know, we it's such a trite thing and people talk about, oh, well, it was a hell of a year um, about any number of years. Right. Um, mm-hmm. But I mean, what are you, you know, when you're back in your newly rebuilt home, hopefully sometime sooner rather than later. How will you look back on, on this, uh, this time in your life? I think I'll just be proud of how my husband and I made it through this and how supportive he was and how he did everything in his power to keep me healthy enough. So I wouldn't have to go to the hospital. And, uh, he was one of the best nurses I've ever had. <laughs> and I just, you know, I'm, if nothing else, it brought our relationship closer. And uh, we just are thankful that we have each other and um, have really, you know, bonded even more with our friends that have been so just right there for us during this time. Yeah, if you can survive these two things, I think you can survive anything together. I think so. Um, does it feel from, you know, your perspective that we're emerging from the pandemic? I think so. I think we seem to have slowed down in terms of our inpatient load. So I think um, to me, that's kind of reflective of how many inpatients you have as to how much is outside in the real world. And, uh, and, you know, I think it's still more young people getting it that probably aren't even aware they have it. Mm-hmm. And so they're not even being counted. So I think the older people or middle-aged people are are being pretty darn careful at this point it, it, when they're at all possible to maintain carefulness. Well, thank you for... Um all you do for your community and thank you for taking time to talk to me about it. Well, thank you for the opportunity. I really just hope everyone gets through this unscathed and uh, fully vaccinated and, and we can reopen and enjoy all of our old things that we used to love doing. And uh, we'll be rooting for you and, and uh, rooting for that home out on the beautiful Mackenzie river. It's a spectacular place. And I hope you're back there sooner rather than later. Yes. We're, we're hoping to be in by fall. So. All right, Katrina. Thanks so much. Okay. Thank you. Let's take a break. When we come back, we'll hear from Tom Hallman. Hallman has been with the Oregonian for 40 years. And in that time, he's won a Pulitzer prize among other honors. Tom Holman, thanks so much for taking time to talk today. You bet, Andrew. Always a pleasure. So how did you start doing these COVID-19 obituaries, Tom? It was an assignment because as the deaths were mounting in the state, the leadership of the paper wanted to put a face to some of these statistics. 
And so it fell to me to do that in, in addition to my other feature writing stories. And I've been at the paper a little over 40 years. And when I started, obituaries were probably the lowest thing you could do. Hmm. And you tried to rush through them. And as I've discovered, particularly within these obits, is that a formal obituary is really just a resume that lists, uh, uh, you know, jobs and accomplishments and, and the places we call home. But that really has little to do with living. And so my goal with these COVID life obits was to talk about the living. Now, the uh, entree into these lives was COVID. And all the people I wrote about were not newsmakers. I bet none of them had ever talked to a reporter in their life. Mm -hmm. And so I had to talk to their families to explain why we were doing this, particularly at a time when it's it's sad for them. And uh, I found in the majority of them, they wanted to have their loved one's life shared with the world. So that was my mission. What are one or two of these lives that stuck with you? Can you talk about a couple of the people you wrote about? Yeah. And there was one woman named Sharon McGovern. She died at 75. And what struck me about her was her her dignity and effort to seize a full life. She was born in 1945 with a, the umbilical cord wrapped around her neck. Mm. And so she was cut off from oxygen and had brain damage. Plus, she had severe scoliosis. And so the, her back spine was curved like a rocking chair. And she graduated uh, high school in 1963. And this was before they had things for developmentally disabled and they assumed she was incapable of doing anything or they pitied her. And, uh, her, her older brother, uh, was really her advocate and was there with her till the very end. She told her brother, he, she wanted to drive a car, which was absurd, but he took her out in his 1978 Chevrolet Camaro to the parking lot at the Multnomah Greyhound racing track, uh, which was then in Fairview, and they practiced. And he discovered that with his sister, all you had to do was show her something and and be patient with her. And she got her driver's license at age 34. And then she wanted to go into the world. And uh, she got a job working for a janitorial service in downtown Portland. And what struck me was her official obit was three paragraphs, a 74-year-old 70, life uh, wrapped up in just 60 words. And, and all it noted was, quote, she liked watching game shows, sitcoms, and westerns on TV. Mm. And yet when you dig into her life and the love she had for life, it sticks with me and it sticks with readers. It was a wonderful story and a, and a life well lived. Thanks for sharing her story. Um, is there another, uh, I know you've written, you know, almost a dozen of these. Um, is there another story that comes to mind? Yes, there is. Uh, the man was named Gregory Minanaw, and he also died at 74 because of COVID. And again, he had a life with a job and a home and all that, but that wasn't what intrigued me, and that wasn't what his wife wanted to share. This guy loved Corvettes. He he collected them, and he sold them, and he traded them, and 
he had a heart issue. And when he went into his doctor before COVID, the doctor said, I'd always love to have a Corvette. And this Gregory said, you know what? I've got one. So he sold it to him. <laughs> and he had, he had plans to buy another one. And then he died. And the doctor who bought it lives near where Gregory and his wife lived. And he drives down their street several times a week. And every time he does, his wife told me, I think of my husband. So that's a beautiful little story about the things we think are important are not necessarily how we're remembered. Now, uh, and, and that's another great example. These are about lives lived to the fullest, two different kind of lives, but they're full lives. Yeah, I know when we chatted previously, Tom, you mentioned that when you're doing these stories, people didn't talk about their jobs or the jobs that they did, right? Their loved ones who who moved on. It was it was about the, you know, the little moments in life. It is. And in, 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 in for listeners, if somebody came up to you, a stranger, and said, hey, tell me about yourself, you would not say, oh, I work at X office. Now, men always do that. What do you do for a job? But after that uh, most surface question, we really want to share how we move through the world. And that gets into questions of faith or family or hobbies. Mm -hmm. And when we share those things, which is the goal of these COVID life obits, we feel a connection to strangers because they reflect on how to live a life or how we want to change things because of them to incorporate in our life. And that's why an obit is about a death. But I believe these life obits are about how to live. They're really a roadmap for anybody who reads them. What else will you take away from writing these life stories, Tom? And anything else you'd want to say? I think the fragility of life. Uh, some of the people had underlying issues. Some are old. I, I wrote about a, a young uh, pediatric uh, nurse uh, who died, who was in great shape. Mm. Um, but uh, life is finite. And it is what we do between the day we are born and the day we die that matters. And my goal with these obits was to focus on how they lived. And I think uh, it, there's a lesson here for anybody that reads these. And I get great reader response to these stories. They're not news, but they, they reflect life. Mm -hmm. it, it's a reminder that, you know, tomorrow is not guaranteed, whether it's COVID-19 or whatever. So you got to live life at this moment. And that's what, that's what these people did. And I take away uh, the, the fact that, in a sense, they really are the teachers for all of us on how to live. Well, thanks so much for sharing their stories and taking time to talk about them. You bet, Andrew. Thanks. Thanks for listening to Beat Check with your Oregonian. I shared a link to our coverage commemorating the 12 months since that first case of COVID-19 in the episode notes. I also shared a few of Tom's COVID life stories. If you like this podcast or recently learned about it, thanks for tuning in. Leave us a five-star rating and review in Apple Podcasts or tell a friend about the show. Help spread the word. If you value our journalism, the best way to support us is with a subscription to Oregon Live. You can do that at OregonLive.com slash pod support. Until next time.